Uh, you can just go. I, I have recording now. I just hit it. Welcome to Let's Explore This, your weekly variety podcast. I'm your host, Josh, here with my co-host today, Kevin. What's up, Kevin? Nothing much, man. Just uh, got done with a week with the parents. Ah, uh, how is this your first time having them out to like Seattle at all? Like, never mind the kid? No, they they came once um, back in June, actually, so they didn't visit no one only my like brother and some friends came out for like the first i guess two years i lived here um Mm -hmm. just because they had shit going on or whatever so they came out right before we got married back in june or end of may and then they came out for a week to see the new baby so how far into that week are are you are they gone yep they yeah they came on monday left today Gotcha. Um, did you and Hannah leave the apartment with George in your parents' care while you know during that week that they were there? Yeah, we did. Good. All right. Good. <laughs> I was gonna say like, hey, go take that opportunity. Like, you guys go out tomorrow. But no, I'm glad that you did that. That that's important to have that time away. For sure. Yeah. We uh, we went and had sushi. Like, we basically just did like an afternoon date. So we went to go get sushi. And then saw the whale. Saw the whale. Yeah. Oh, the movie with Brendan Fraser. How was it? It was so good. Like, I've heard that. It chill. It. I was crying. (laughs) Like, that's why I posted on Twitter the other day. I'm like, I recommend you go see the whale, but not in a uh, mall movie theater because you'll be walking through the food court with tears in your eyes (laughs) on your way back to your car. But I mean, yeah, I'm normally crying in the food court at the mall as I like consume my Cinnabon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, it's 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 just like that. <laughs> nice. Word. Um all right. So your parents were there, you guys did a date night. So here we did like an amazingly wholesome family weekend. <laughs> Which, which is nice, where it's like Friday here in Lexington was Excite Night, which is what kicked off the UK women's gymnastics team's like competitive season. Mm-hmm. And so normally they play it or they have their meets and such at Memorial Coliseum, which is like a 3000 seat stadium. But for Excite Night, they have it at Rep Arena, which is where the UK men's basketball team plays. And it's like a 27,000 seat stadium. And like they didn't sell out Rep Arena, but like there was easily, you know, 13,000 people there, 15,000 people, right? Like it was, it was packed. Yeah. And it's cool. And it was a fun event. So I took the kids to that. Saturday did a bunch of just stuff running around, hanging out with the kids. And, you know, we went to a nice lunch, whatever. And then today we went up to Louisville for, this thing called Jurassic Quest, which is like a touring animatronic dinosaur exhibit deal. Um, then, you know, a bunch of interactive stuff with the kids and whatever. Had lunch with some friends up there and then got home. And my mom and my brother and my brother's son came over for dinner, which was nice. Nice. Yeah. Uh, I'm wearing a Sam the Cooking Guy shirt. Anna got this for me for Christmas. 
And so tonight for dinner, for, for them coming over, I did a Sam the Cooking Guy recipe of like his herb crusted roasted salmon in the oven. It was really good. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. Uh, you know, coating salmon in like a thin layer of mayonnaise sounds really odd, right? But like, it's good. It worked out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I. You got to add like some extra fat into the salmon, you know? Right. Um, do you ever get those, the the basil butter salmon things from Costco? I've not, but I have seen them. They they're they so do that. They're appetizing. Yeah, they are so good. I I we actually just got some today. Nice. <laughs> when when I got the salmon today at Kroger to then you know that I was going to cook this evening, they had these jalapeno cheddar salmon burgers that like, you know, when they're trimming the salmon to put in the fillets, right? They have a bunch of cuts that they mm-hmm. ground up. And so that'll probably be lunch tomorrow. I'm actually pretty pumped for that. Hell yeah, man. Yeah. We, one other thing I did this last week or I guess yesterday, I went to the car museum in Tacoma with my dad. And, uh, before that we stopped at this place called cosmonaut coffee uh, I just wanted, it's something I saw in like Google maps. I wanted to check out. It's like, you know, obviously it's like Soviet Russia themed or whatever. And so we get there and it's just a tiny little cool coffee shop. And the guy behind the counter is listening to Metallica's first album. And so Metallica's coming. I'm a huge Metallica fan or whatever. So Metallica's coming to Seattle um, next August. And I asked him, if he was going to the show and he just goes, no, I fucking hate those guys. And I'm like, what? you know, and he was wearing, I'm a, just listening to like a 40 year old album. Ironically. <laughs> yeah. So basically he then went to tell me like, for those of you who aren't Metallica fans, their original bass player's name was Cliff Burton. And he was a very prolific bass player. He brought them to the Bay area cause they started in LA he brought he them up. He died on a tour bus, right? Yeah, he got he yeah, he died cuz the tour bus flipped over in like Sweden or Norway or something and he got crushed by it. Um right. and so their second bass player, Jason Newstead, um they kind of hazed him the whole time and treated him like shit. And so he just hates Metallica and and a lot of people think Metallica just sold out after their fourth album. And so like people Hard, there's the hard. He was just one of those hardliners who's just like, fuck these guys. They fucked up after Cliff Burton, you know, and he was wearing a Cliff Burton t shirt, even. <laughs> and so I'm just sitting there, like, this guy is just berating Metallica to me. And it's like, dude, I was just trying to make a friendly conversation, <laughs> right? I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> um, is- but it was a cool little coffee shop, anyway. I bought some coffee beans from them. Nice. If I were to run a coffee shop like that, I feel like it would be obligatory to have a bunch of like Yakov Smirnoff jokes throughout, right? Like (laughs) in Soviet Russia, receipt tells you to tip. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They had a, uh, they just had like a bunch of um, old like rocket ship toys around. I mean, this place was tiny and then you could buy like a sweater or whatever. And then they had like, they actually had they had a library there too, so you could get a bunch of like leftist literature. I didn't I didn't really take too close of a look 
you had to, if you wanted to book you you obviously had to trade one in so i was just like whatever okay that's cool uh, you should definitely go back there and take like um you know the, the fountainhead right or atlas shrugged <laughs> right and pull like you know a marxist leninist book out right and play, replace it with ayn rand yeah no yeah that guy would uh look at me and be like okay that's enough i know you're that asshole who asked me if i liked metallica still and now you're bringing this shit in here right. <laughs> just throw hot coffee in my face <laughs> were the were the toys that were around like 1950s era right yeah. like that kind of motif mm-hmm. nice yeah it was, it's a cool little spot and then they had a big mural of like uh um uh like a labor icon type thing or whatever from back then and it's just kind of neat interesting so somewhat related but not really but i I play i'm a huge dork right and i play tabletop role-playing games and i play shadow run online on a discord server and there's two different characters that i've interacted with that are hilarious where one he's like this conspiracy nut and at like the start of every game he's like all right well i walk outside my apartment i'm drinking my morning coffee I let off a few rounds into the air aimlessly to do my part to keep property values down. <laughs> right. And then the other one is totally like this, like black hat anarchist. Yeah. Uh, where her character is like, Oh, you know, it, you're, you're telling me that you're doing this job so that you can pay rent. Hmm? Okay. Well, I think you should probably just take the money that you were going to give your landlord buy an AK 47 use it to murder your landlord <laughs> right and then just not have to pay rent anymore right and like <laughs> those themes just keep coming up it it's funny yeah i didn't know Shadowrun was a a or like a tabletop rpg where do you know shadow run from uh the 360 the xbox 360 did they release the old Shadowrun games on there Shadowrun returns dragonfall in hong kong um, I just, I think they just made one in like 2006 or seven. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, I actually, I replayed those games very recently, like within the last year. Um, they're a lot of fun. Yeah. Not- I, I didn't know that they came out for 360. I thought that they were computer games. They probably were. And then they ported them to 360, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You can get it for five bucks. No, we had my one of my buddies always played it. It was it looked pretty fun, or it was pretty fun from what I remember. Yeah, so you know, the, we can spend a lot of time talking about tabletop role role playing game stuff if you want, but like Shadowrun as like a, a property has been around since the eighties, and oh. they're in their sixth edition of a role playing game. It's currently run by um, Catalyst Games Lab CGL, um, but it's funny like the catalyst games lab is also owned by the same company that owns tops baseball cards and catalyst games lab costs that company a lot more money than tops and makes a lot less money than tops. Mm -hmm. And so just at every turn, their budgets are getting slashed and like management is put in place like, you know, cost cutters and like, we're going to put out books that we know people will buy. They don't have to be good because we know people will buy them because we've got this label on it. And so there's this like active level of antagonism between 
the people that make the game and the people that buy the game. And it's, it's really unfortunate, um, mm. you know, cause it's a cool property and they've got good rules or they have good concepts at times, but like the current version of the game, sixth edition, it just came out like three years ago and it's virtually a dead system at this point. Like case in point example, the discord server that I play on plays fifth edition. Oh yeah. Yeah. Wow. Have you, I actually, I didn't really like look too much into it, but I saw a bunch of people um, talking shit about uh, Wizards of the Coast lately. Yeah. Yeah. The, the OGL update. Was that, what was that Dragon uh, Dungeons and Dragons? Mm-hmm. Like, what was the deal so, with the same kind of thing? Uh, wow. Well, sort of. All right. So, five minute history lesson, right? Um, in 1999 or 2000, Wizards of the Coast released the third edition of Dungeons and Dragons, and that was written largely by Monty Cook, who was, uh, you know, within that world, right, is like a big name. And one of the things that they made as a business decision at that time was the creation of what's known as the open gaming license, which basically says we have put forth a set of rules and processes and like ways that the mechanics interact with one another. So long as you do not use our proprietary intellectual property of like named characters, named settings, named locations, you can use these rules in whatever way you seem see fit. And we are making the business decision that more people playing the game means more people will buy our books even if they get into it for your setting. And what drove that decision is that Wizards of the Coast looked around and realized that, you know, for every five players, there's one GM. Mm-hmm. And every player is going to, or almost every player, is going to buy a player's handbook. Only one GM is going to buy a Dungeon Master's Guide and a Monster Manual. Only you know, one in three GMs is going to buy the adventures that they write and they put out, right? And only one in five GMs are going to buy the setting books that they write and they put out. And those other books that I'm describing that aren't player options, but are the GM stuff, are more expensive to create and take more time and have a smaller market. But if they charge five times as much for that book, they're going to sell zero books, right? Yeah. So the idea of the open gaming license was let's basically create this community of freelancers of people that are empowered to use our game system to make their content. And then we're going to benefit by fostering this community that happened in like 1999, 2000, right around that time. Fourth edition comes out something like 2008, 2010, is very poorly received. And on top of that, 4th edition explicitly does not have the open gaming license as part of it. If you publish anything using 4th edition mechanics, Wizards of the Coast will sue you. 4th edition crumbles very quickly. In the same way that 6th edition Shadowrun is a you know virtually a dead edition, that's the case with 4th edition D&D as well. It was almost dead on arrival. And mechanically speaking, a big deviance that happened there 
was that you know games like World of Warcraft had gotten really popular between the start of third edition and when fourth edition launched. And you know, and not just World of Warcraft, right? A whole host of other MMOs. There's a surge of MMOs uh, mm-hmm. during that time period. And so they focused on trying to replicate the MMO gaming experience at tabletop. So uh, basically there was a sequence of powers of like you had at will powers, once per combat powers, and once per day powers. And so they would refresh right at those intervals. And you would also have a bunch of like auras and stuff. And it just became all this like tedious overlapping benefits and oh hang on i missed this action and that should have allowed for this and it was just it was tedious um and it it didn't feel like dungeons and dragons and so during that time a company named paizo which had previously written the dungeon and dragon two separate entities dungeon dragon separate magazines for DD Paizo had been the writers of that. And when fourth edition came out, Wizards of the Coast said, we are not going to continue these magazines. Everyone here is out of the job. And they looked around and they said, well, shit, we've been writing this shit professionally for nine years. We know the rules inside and out. We know all these different ways that we can tweak it. The open gaming license for third edition exists. We're going to create a company, you know, now named Paizo at the time they were something else, but like Paizo is what came from it. And they published Pathfinder, which is what you and I played when we were in Lyle. Yeah. And so that company has been in existence since like 2009, 2010. And for a long time, it outsold D and D fourth edition. Right. And Paizo was getting to where they were like the big kids on the block, except that like wizards of the coast was owned by Hasbro. Right. So like, they're really like the corporate behemoth. Right. Mm -hmm. So fourth edition goes away. Fifth edition comes out. Fifth edition says we're going to operate under the same open gaming license. that third edition had all the exact same rules. We want that community back. We made a mistake with fourth edition. Let's go for fifth edition came out in like 2014. Um, I'm pretty sure that's right. Uh, maybe it was very late 2013, but but that that time frame, and it's been a huge success. Case in point example came out in 2014. We're now in 2023, and we do not have a definitive like 0.5 of the edition. So like, with that being said, right? Like in 3.0, after like three years, they released a 3.5, where it's like, hey guys there were a bunch of spots where we missed stuff in the rules. Here's a holistic update to the rules, right? This is the new system. And, you know, it, everything felt the same, but it just, it, it was fine tuned. And fourth edition did that after one year. Um, second edition had three different instances of that, that sparked a like competing line within their business product, right? Because, at one point, one set of rules went this way and another set of rules went this way, and they published under both of them. Fifth edition has not had that at all. And they're now talking about creating like a effectively a sixth edition. They're not calling it that, but that's what it's going to be. And it's being called one D&D. And as part of that, they're saying, we're going to have an update to the open gaming license that will retroactively affect everything from the 1.0 open gaming license that came from third edition in 2000. And as part of that, anyone that makes more than $750,000 a year 
from publishing under the OGL will automatically owe us a minimum royalty of 25% of their revenue, oh. right? Not 25% of their profit, 25% of their revenue. And the original wording of it also was structured such that things like Patreon subscriptions, which would hit some specific creators like Matt Koval and um, shoot, what is it where it's crowdfunding Kickstarter? Kickstarter stuff is huge, right? Yep. And the thing to keep in mind is that a lot of these Kickstarters are relying on delivering a physical product to someone. And so I may collect an $80 yo pledge from you to sell you this book that I'm going to create. And selling you this book in the Kickstarter process allows me to also like print other books to go sell in a friendly local game store for $60. Right. But my cost to print that book all in is like 45 bucks, 50 bucks, 55 bucks, right. That I'm going to go sell at 60. Right. If I can collect full price, but like 45 to 50 is probably the true cost for most of these publishers. Well, if you take 25% from 80, right. And, all of a sudden these Kickstarters that are raising three and $4 million that like turn into like decent paydays for the people that do it, where it's like, you know, it's three years of effort and they net $250,000, right? Like that's nice that they made 80 grand a year for three years effectively, but like they got it in a lump sum at some point and only because of clever marketing and also managing a very complicated supply chain, right. And getting everything to, to market, right? Like this is not a trivial task. Um, well, now that's gone. Mm -hmm. And so there was a huge upheaval within the community and a lot of pushback. And now Wizards of the Coast is walking this back and saying, Hey guys, we rolled a one on our rollout of this new OGL. And we were really trying to do it so that we could fight transphobia and racism. And we want to, you know, be, be compliant with blockchain and like, yeah, they're throwing out a bunch of buzzwords, right? Yeah. And like, the, there is some level of some truth to some of that, right? Where the, very recently, within the last like year and a half, two years, the son of Gary Gygax, who was the original creator of D&D back in the 70s, came out basically with this like, babes in chainmail bikini, you know, update of D&D 5e. And, you know, we're like, we're going back to the old school, right? And, like, that, that's fine, right? Like, you know, Conan and, you know, that kind of stuff. But within that, he had, you know, different races, right? And the different racial modifiers have this and that. But it was within a place that, like, didn't really have, like, orcs and goblins and whatever. It was just different types of humans, right? For sure. And so within this version of it, right, like, all of the white people were just better right they were stronger they were smarter they were more charismatic whatever right and then like they're specifically like africans right and like they didn't use that word but it's clearly what they were doing right and it's like oh yeah and their intelligence can never go above this and they have this oh. primal lust and they have this you know carnal da 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 and it's like that's kind of gross dude like yeah let's no let, let's not publish that yeah that is pretty fucked up so that's a little bit of a deviance. Like that's trying to give Watsy a little bit of a cover, but you know, as someone that has 
been playing, you know, D and D and role playing games since I was like 16, right? 15. And I'm 38. Um, well, I'm 37. I'll be 38 in a, a month and a half. Uh, I really kind of feel like they may have done some irreparable harm to the brand because they spent two decades building a community and they already said, Hey guys, we messed up once. And when they did that and they went back to the OGL with, with fifth edition, it flourished, Mm -hmm. right? Fifth edition has been huge and they fucked up again. And it, it, uh, this also led directly from a Hasbro earnings call where the president of Wizards of the Coast got on the call and said that they felt like the D&D community was grossly under-monetized and that we need to approach the D&D community the same way that video games approach their consumers with introducing microtransactions. And then we're going to build this in with one D&D and with creating an online environment and an online table, right? And so, like, they didn't use these examples on the earnings call, but this is the type of thing that has been talked about because Wizards of the Coast has been hiring a lot of computer programmers that have mobile development backgrounds and video game backgrounds from games like Call of Duty, um, Battlefield, um, a, a few others. Like, I think they actually have some Madden developers, whatever. But the idea being like, all right, we have a virtual tabletop and you have a mini that's on that virtual tabletop. You can select from these 38 options for your mini, you know, for free, right? Or for $2 a month, you can have access to 300 minis. Or for $10 a month, you can have a hat that has, you know, like (laughs) a scarf coming off of it that is animated, right? And it's going to be animated the whole time. Yeah. Right. You know, it for, for, $2.99, unlock it, that when you roll a critical hit with your warrior, there's a dragon roar, right? And it's like, man, A, I think they're grossly underestimating how cheap role-playing game players are. (laughs) And then, two, like, I I don't play a lot of those games that those developers came from, right? Because I don't want to be milked at every turn. Oh, yeah, it sucks. Yeah. Wow, that's bullshit. Yeah, I didn't realize that was happening there. I mean, I think, I mean, video games in general, I guess, I are getting, I don't know. I, I, I don't like, I don't like where it's heading with microtransactions. And then like, like Blizzard just came out and with Diablo 4 and base, the I think the base is going to be $80 for the base game. You know, and so I've been seeing games get go from like, you know, 50. When I was a kid, I think it was like 40 bucks for an N64 game. So it was like 60. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It was 60. But it wasn't like the Wii was 50. I thought when they got to disc, it was a little bit cheaper. But I remember being like 50 bucks and then 50 to 60 bucks normal, you know. I remember Super Nintendo games were $60. Yeah, yeah. But I I I I, re- I do think the Wii was fifty dollars, but sure. regardless, like sixty bucks, fifty to sixty bucks is kind of what I anticipate a game to cost, especially when you're just getting a freaking digital. But download. Kevin, 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 come on, man. We're saying like back in my day, gasoline was a quarter. Yeah. You know, like 
Uh, come on, man. We're saying 20 years ago, a game was $60, and they should have zero price increases ever between 20 years ago and today? I don't... Well, we don't get... What's been happening for a while now is they release the game unfinished. And then a battle pass. And yeah, and you get... It started with, like, DL... So I think it started with Halo. Halo and Gears of War map packs. The map pack DLC. That's where... It started it, with... Sky, not Skyrim. It started with um, not Elder Scrolls. Whatever Elder Scrolls 4 was. I think it was Oblivion. That was okay. the first example of a microtransaction in a game where there was an armor that you could buy for your horse. And at the okay. time, it was like $3 or $5. But it was the very first time that someone had done it. And it sold ridiculously well. And yeah. this was on a single-player game. No one else but you is going to see this armor. <laughs> yeah, it's it's ridiculous. Um, so, I mean, I did buy... So I did a lot of microtransactions with DLC for Halo and Gears. Um, Rock Band with all the song packs that came out. And then I kind of stayed away from it. Um, but I started to see it happen to games like Counter-Strike. And that's such a good game. I think Counter-Strike is like the pinnacle, like the best uh, FPS. And um, with Counter-Strike Go, uh, or Global Offensive, mm-hmm. um, they, uh, they, they did that same thing. They did loot boxes. So you get gun skins. And with those, actually, it, it did develop like a, a, an economy on Steam where you could sell gun skins and such. Um, and you can still make some money off of like knife skins, I believe, because knife skins are the rarest. Um, but yeah, I mean, I did have friends making like 40 bucks off one gun skin for like an AK or something. But still, like most of them were useless. And it costs like $4 to open up one of these fucking crates. And you get you get the crates for free, but you got to buy a key to open up the crate. Um, oh, that's dumb! Yeah. Oh my goodness! And uh, I I have never paid for anything on Heroes of the Storm, um, but that's a huge microtransaction one. But then I I did get into Valorant, and I did kind of get sucked into the the battle pass and the gun skins on that game. Um, so I you know I I have probably spent like seventy eighty bucks on gun skins. Um, sure. but yeah, I don't know. I just you don't get a physical copy anymore. Everything's digital download. And then the game is pretty much unfinished and they're charging extra. You know, it's, it's and, and, well, and this is another great. So you never get a physical copy of the game anymore with the new systems that came out, the PS five and the Xbox one, what, you know, whatever it was, there was at one point about two years before they came out where both systems announced within like, three months of each other that they were not going to have a disc drive that the games were going to be digital only. Mm-hmm. And there was a huge backlash. Right. And now both of them have discs. Yep. Right. And like, yeah, I, I got the version of my PS five with the disc. So did right. I. And like, and you know what I've done? Shared games with my buddies. Right. And borrowed games from my buddies. Yeah. Right. And like, I'll get this one. You get the next one. Right. We pass. And like, yeah, I mean, that's what gamers do. That's what it's about. Yeah. I mean, if you're buying a freaking, $600 console, you know, you're paying to play online. Like these guys have no shortage of money is kind of what I'm saying. And it's like, and I, and I feel like the, the addition of microtransactions has made games worse. You know, now sure. everybody just wants to play. I mean, like, I don't know. I know a lot of people like Warzone or whatever, but it's like Warzone happened because of Fortnite. 
a free sure. microtransaction game. And so it's like, are we just going to start getting these like really simple watered down games now? Sure. I Yes, I, I understand your sentiment. There are great examples, though, of game studios that are still trying to put out quality products, right? Like yeah. Ghost of Tsushima was an amazing game. Zero microtransactions. Uh, you know, the new God of War. Um, the Witcher 3. I mean, at this point, that's like 10, 12 years old, right? Yeah. But it, it's a matter, maybe not 10, maybe seven, what, whatever it is, right? It's a masterpiece. The Mass Effect trilogy, right? Like, there are all of these awesome single player games that do come out and will continue to come out. I hope, mm-hmm. but, but I mean, this is also one of those things, right? Where it's like within our system of capitalism, right? Like the incentives lie in a certain place, right? Where can you extract the most value from your consumer? Mm-hmm. Right. And that is your task as a company is, is to, to generate that value and then extract it. Yeah. And, there's a lot of people that are willing to pay an extra dollar so that they can look a little bit cooler to oh, yeah. strangers on the internet. Right. And like, I don't get it, but my brother <laughs> does that. He loves paying for skin and like, he doesn't love paying the money for it, but he loves skins and getting the new skin. And you know, he played league of legends for years and years and years. Right. And it's a free to play game, but I guarantee you he's put a minimum of a thousand dollars into the game. Like, it wouldn't shock me if I learned that he'd put $3,000 into the game, for but sure. I mean, granted, he played it for like 13 years, you yeah. know, 12 years. Um, but he was like, Oh yeah. You know, Timo is my favorite character. And I paid, you know, $8 to have a skin of Timo where he looks like a pirate, you know? And like <laughs> to him, like our mateys, right. And yeah. like, I'm shooting you with my poison darts. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't get it. I, I don't buy those skins, but a whole lot of other people do. Yeah. I, so like I said, I, I did, I did buy skins for, um, uh, Valorant and I did it mostly because I thought the default skins were like really boring and I got tired of looking at them. Well, and they probably were intentionally. Exactly. So. <laughs> oh, for sure. And when you clip like cool headshots and shit, you can, so you can get gun skins that, so you, have you played Counter-Strike? <sighs> Or like I, I I played a lot of Counter Strike back in the day. I've I've never played Global Offensive, but I mean I, I started gaming in the early '90s, right? So I yeah. played the original Counter Strike in like 2.0, 3.0. Yeah. Um, but I mean I was never on like a CL team or whatever it was. Sure, but so you can in Valorant they have special gun skins where you it does like a little animation, and so like you'll be sitting there holding your gun like between your hands and it'll be like spinning around in your hands or whatever and then you get a headshot and you clip it and it looks cool (laughs) so i've done shit like that um but yeah i try to keep it to a minimum i i I do know people who will like like i had a friend who um the original version of i think it was called h1z1 it was like the original version of um PUBG. Um, we played that for like a day or two and one of my friends bought like all the cosmetics. Uh, and then he would do like a lot of like server transfer shit on world of Warcraft and just pay for like every single microtransaction he could get his hands on. And, but so yeah, like like, it just, it is kind of unfortunate that like people are just getting milked for that kind of shit. And to me, especially with blizzard you know in the in the diablo 4 um example 
how much more money does Activision or well, I guess Microsoft Blizzard now or whatever it is, how much more money do they need? I don't know. I get. I, see, that's a question I would ask myself. How much more money do they need? But they don't ask that question. That question never comes up. It's how do we make more money? That's the only question they ever ask. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I just think it's kind of detrimental to video games as a whole. And for a long time, I I have stopped buying AAA titles because they always seem to come out unfinished and I just buy like indie survival games for the most part. Cause you, you can get like, I bought Minecraft for 15 bucks in 2010 and I get the updates for it even to this day. Um, and like I bought Valheim when that came out, it's like a Viking themed survival game for like 20 bucks and they're great games, you know? I have more fun doing that than playing like Call of Duty and I spent way, way less, you know? Sure. Um, I do think with the the Activision Blizzard example, you're actually kind of missing the forest for the trees a little bit, or not even the forest for the trees. You just, you missed a stop on the Diablo exit because before the Diablo 4 announcement with like an $80 price point, and even then it's worse than that where they have these like starting bundles, whatever. And like, mm-hmm. you can actually pay like $120 to buy the game to get, and get some extra skins. And, and, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, but there's also like in-game bonuses where you'll level faster, right? Yep. So like, it's, n- it's not just cosmetic, but Diablo Immortal, which was like their mobile game. Yeah. Was, expi- was explicitly pay to win. Yep. And someone figured out something to the effect where it's like, in order to get top tier in every slot, you would either have to spend the equivalent of like three years playing the game. And that's not like three years at like three hours a week. That's three years at 24, seven, 365, right. To, to max out, right. To like virtually impossible, or you'd have to pay $320,000 to get top tier in every slot. Holy and shit. You could, pay that money right out the gate, right? Like, oh yeah, here's all my money for my gems and my slots and my runes and da 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 da, da right? And like, people, I mean, I, I don't think people paid $320,000. For sure. Right? But like, people played the game. Right? Oh yeah. People loved it. And I mean, it sold well for some amount of time. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I played that a little bit on, on PC, but like, yeah, it's just, I don't know. I'm not a fan of microtransactions, and I was really hoping that loot boxes were going to get classified as gambling. So hang on. (laughs) Hang on, actually. I want to connect this thread back to our conversation that we had earlier about Metallica and this guy that was listening to Metallica but fucking hates them, right? Yeah. Because they're a bunch of fucking sellouts, right, after their fourth (laughs) album, right? Yeah. So what were they doing? They were selling out arenas, right? They were selling lots of CDs and records and, you know, whatever, right? were making lots of money the most amount of money that they could make as a band because that was their prerogative is it that different for video games like what what are we talking about well imagine if metallica i I mean i guess they do sell like i guess the way i would i mean i i don't think so with the video games i mean i think it's kind of like like Metallica doesn't put out an album that's not finished, you know, and then charge, say, Hey, buy our album for $20 and then subscribe to Metallica plus 
and we'll give you the next, you know, five songs that we were going to release, but we're still working on, um, with that album, you know, that's, they don't do that shit or they don't like, I don't know, make like no. have Metallica I, rewards or something and like make you gamble for loot boxes. <laughs> are they making you gamble for loot boxes? No, but all right. They release an album. They're going to come tour in your city, you know, concert tickets, right? Are you up in the seats up in the top row? Are you in general admission? Are you buying the pit pass? Right? Like all of those are, mm -hmm. you know, different tiers, right? If we're talking about microtransactions, you're buying a t-shirt, a button, a sticker, a keychain, whatever, right? Like all of that's monetizing their product, right? Like, and we're over here saying like, I really wish that these video game developers would just be true to their art, right? And just put forth this quality product for the sake of it, right? And like, why do you need to make more money? You've made enough money, but right? Is that that different from saying like Metallica could charge $20 a ticket, but they're going to charge $200 a ticket, But the you know, because people will pay it. But you get the concert. Games that come out are constantly... Well, just think of like cyberpunk or fallout mm -hmm. 76. They're releasing these dog shit games that aren't finished. When Metallica releases mm -hmm. an album, it's finished. You're, you're getting the whole product. You're not getting partial product and then required to buy additional like DLC to get the finished game. That's no, what's I mean, with Cyberpunk, I, mean, I bought Cyberpunk recently and I got Fallout 76 for free through PS Plus yeah. like this month, right? Yeah, I haven't played there. it yet, but you know, it, it just came out, right? But with Cyberpunk, like you didn't have to pay more money for it to be a finished product, right? You just had to wait longer, right? And that's unfortunate that it was in seven years of development, yeah, and was still at a not releasable state. And the people that were paying for seven years of development said, at some point I need to get a return on this investment ship, whatever you have. Right. And it was a disaster. Yeah. And that sucks. Right. Especially for the people that had pre-ordered and whatever. That happens, what are we talking about? Right. Like all the time, it, you know, no those developers, sky. those developers probably could have spent another three years working on it and still been in the state of like, I don't know if we can release it yet, guys. You know, like if you give someone an unlimited amount of time, and you're not the one paying the bills, right? That's like a failure yeah. though. That the release of cyberpunk was a complete failure. So was, I, I'm not disagreeing. So it was, so was, uh, but I mean, like all this DLC and season passes and loot boxes and shit, that's all like, it's not I, extra. I think they are distinctly different problems. I think, I think the, an unfinished game is going to be bad in its own right, right? And the, the places where you see that is the single player games. The places where you see the season passes and the loot boxes are multiplayer games. Yeah. Those games work when they come out because if multiplayer games don't work when they come out, people don't play them, right? You need people to play them. We'll it's the single player games where it's like, I already got your 60 bucks and I want you to buy my DLC in 18 months or 20 bucks. And shit, uh, you know, some of these quests are really buggy. And Cyberpunk is a particularly bad example of a buggy, buggy mess. Yeah. Right? Like it's it's probably the worst game release. I mean, I don't know, maybe not in history, but like close to it. Well, yeah, I think the worst 
release ever is No Man's Sky, where they actually had to like refund everybody because it was so fucking yeah, bad. No, no Man's Sky was borderline fraud, although like yeah. I haven't played it, but apparently at this point it's actually really good and like too. fulfills all of the original promises. Yeah, um, but you can get but, it for like thirty on, bucks on, now I, instead of sixty. We're we're straying away from the point that I was driving towards, right? I feel like you're drawing an imaginary line in the sand of when Metallica releases a, a an album, it is finished. And that's that. So they are okay and pure in an artistic level, you know, because of that. While ignoring, you know, and and so we can acknowledge that that is a problem. Well, here, video here, games, wait, right? But the problem that you then are are pointing towards is loot boxes, tiered pricing, you know, additional content offered later that you know creates different atmospheres, whatever, right? But all of that exists within but, music and within, you know, Metallica's particularly is known for having monetized all their stuff, right? South Park famously made fun of them for it. So here, like, just look at the music industry in general. The cost of a CD, like a Metallica CD in 1982, is the same cost as it is today. Or you mm-hmm. can just listen to it on Spotify for free. So they've gone 40 years. Costs are going up. Costs are going up but yet their product doesn't sell as quickly or in the volumes that it could because people can just listen to it online. So why is that happening with video games? And then video games are coming out watered down. You're seeing more AAA titles come out as shitty releases, unfinished games, and then an increase in microtransactions and DLC. So it's like all this time and like, and like all this labor that's going to making the fancy sparkly scarf you can buy for three bucks is getting taken away from making an actual good game so that's kind of why i think microtransactions and all this extra dlc crap is taking away from actual good video games i mean the golden era of games was like 20 30 years ago sure I think I think my point, right, and what I was pointing towards is people and companies respond to incentives. Mm-hmm. And we can say as snooty video game consumers and smart guys, man, they could have given us a better product, but would that have sold more? Would that have made them more money? I don't know, right? They keep doing this other yeah. thing that keeps making them money and people keep buying it, right? Yeah. Like they're going to go where that dollar is. Yeah. And I think that comes at the expense of quality. I mean, and that's just how everything is. Cause like, and that's so like gonna the problem with quality? capitalism. Well, they could, I, I honestly think that they could, we're talking about profit margins. I don't think these people would be unprofitable. Their profit margins would just be smaller. And but but why do you want to make one million dollars if you can make twelve million dollars? Because you don't need twelve million dollars. I mean, says the person that's not going to cash that eleven million dollar check. The way I look at it, because I, I mean, okay, I guess if we want to get into like the philosophy behind it, it's like I feel like. Uh, that's a money addiction and that's a detriment to society to enrich oneself. I think an ethical company would want to be profitable 
like all these Kickstarter guys who are, you know, selling, you know, making five bucks a book or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like that's the type of people we want making video games. But instead it's become just like pretty much every other industry. It becomes completely, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Consolidated. Mm -hmm. And then costs go up and quality goes down. You know, I do think that if we're talking about like the ethics of an industry, and that is part of the concern that the idea of, you know, the ethics of the industry within healthcare, education, law enforcement, the prison industrial complex, right? Like mm-hmm. all of these things, right? We should expect a much higher standard for the ethics of the people within it. Oh, then yeah. I cannot envision, you know, a better example of a luxury good beyond a video game, right? We are explicitly here for entertainment, for people with disposable income and disposable time. Sure. Like, you know, if ever there's a place for someone to be like, Hey, you know, I'm doing this to help nerds, you know, have fun. All right. I'm going to collect a dollar, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's kind of part of it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I always kind of, I guess I, I understand it to be a, I guess, I don't know if I would want to qualify it as a luxury good, but cause it's kind of like, it's not a necessity. No, I mean, true, but it's, I feel like it's except more, ex, I don't know. I guess I look at luxury goods at things that are like very not, like non-accessible, I guess for mm-hmm. mo- most people. And, and I look at video games as a way for lower income people to entertain themselves or everybody too, but it's accessible to lower income individuals. Um, and, but should it be, should the poor be allowed to have fun? (laughs) (laughs) Only if they work hard. That's right. (laughs) So I just, I don't know. I just, I just feel like, I just feel like more and more video games are becoming a ripoff, I guess is that that's how I could distill my argument to the simplest form is I do think we're just getting ripped off, um, through microtransactions. And yeah, you don't have to participate in them, but like in the example you had of Diablo Immortal or whatever, it's like you need to put money in, otherwise you're going to be playing forever. Like with Heroes no, of the No, you do not. You do not need to put money in because you, you do not or, need the tra- to play. That's the right? Trade-off. It is the definition of a luxury good. I get but like so like with Hots, for example, or Heroes of the Storm, mm-hmm. I've been playing that game since twenty fifteen, I think. And granted, I have taken long periods of time off, but I still haven't unlocked all the characters. Well, I mean, and they also continually release new characters. Well, it, they actually stopped. <laughs> the game's in like okay. maintenance mode, but still, like, I don't know. I just, and granted, it's a free game, but you got you to to actually unlock everything in a timely manner. You're going to be spending way more than sixty bucks or fifty bucks. You know, those games and- are like a cash cow, hardcore. Well, sure. And they're designed to do that. Yeah. Right. And so if you have the time and the inclination, you don't have to pay anything. Yeah. Right. But if you want to cough up five bucks to get Rainer's elite skin in a vulture. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Right. That go blow people up with spider mines. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But, uh, no, this is a good conversation, but do you, yeah. So just, yeah, spe- speaking of, of blowing people up and speaking <laughs> about like fueling 
um, some of our video game desires. Do you know what you really need to do that? No. Electricity. Power. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You need power (laughs) in your home. Yeah, that's true. Like, your computer will not run if a bunch of right-wing fascists have shot up your local power station. (laughs) So, are you aware of what's been going on with this or, like, some of the extent of it? I... So since I, I mean, I, I live in Washington and, uh, basically, so Pierce County is where Tacoma is. And so Pierce County had a bunch of power outages. I think it was right before Christmas or was it right Mm -hmm. after Christmas? Yeah. Where, uh, these two dudes were attacking power stations. And I think, was it like a thousand people went without power or something? Somewhere Mm -hmm. around there. And then I heard of a few examples of it happening in like South Carolina. But other than that, I haven't like really dug into it so south carolina is the big one and with that one there was forty-five thousand people that were without power for power was restored to most customers after three days right so forty-five thousand people were without power for three days yeah right and amongst that population though some people didn't have power for like 15 days jesus right until they were able to get stuff patched and whatnot so you know the most widespread examples of the most people impacted are what we just described uh, with Washington and North Carolina. However, in the year 2022, if you were to put to guess, and I, I want you to just the first number that comes to your mind, how many attacks using firearms versus power stations, substations, transformers, whatever occurred within 2022. What what's your number? I would say like 5 125. Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's yeah. wild. Yeah, between January and August, it was like 105, and then between August and the end of the year, there was another 20. Wow. And these facilities are low impact. I'm sorry, they're high impact, but low hardening, right? So a lot of these places are just like behind a chain link fence, mm-hmm. you know, the boonies, whatever. And there's no one on site, right? So the, the risk of being caught, like, you know, if you can identify where a camera is and take out the camera or avoid the camera, then like, and, and you're willing to, you know, take a walk or hike through the woods, right? It is what it is, right? Um, in some of these examples, there are people that cut through chain link fences and, you know, got up there and got closer and, and such. And in other examples of some of these attacks from what I was reading, it is clear that there was insider knowledge in terms of either being aware of the layout of the facility because people cut through a fence and then they were seen on camera taking a specific path to a critical piece of equipment and sabotaging that piece of equipment and then leaving. Mm -hmm. Or if not insider knowledge, then they had subject matter expert knowledge, right? Where there's like, I'm an electrical engineer. I'm aware of how these power substations work. I know that this is the piece of equipment we're looking for, and I know how to find it once we're inside. Yeah. Um, and what that's speaking to is a level of sophistication within the attacks 
and that has grown since they started, which indicates that some of the early attacks that were in like January through April were sort of like test and research, which speaks to a level of coordination between <laughs> groups. Yeah. Um, kind of fucked up. That uh, is fucked up, dude. That's creepy. Right. And, and you know, that escalated into the largest one in South Carolina with 45,000 people mm-hmm. being disrupted for some of them up to two weeks. And like, there was also an example. I don't remember if it was in like Georgia or Arkansas where the disruption only affected like 500 people, but the area of town that it disrupted was explicitly done to disrupt a drag show. And like, I, I don't want to get into some of those, those topics and such right now. Cause I think it's a little bit of a distraction from this conversation. Yeah. But that, that really goes back towards, you know, targeted effort and action right with an agenda and what are you doing right and i i took a class when i was in college about terrorism and it was one of the really interesting things that happened in the start of the class was the professor linked specific actors that started in the french revolution and carried like this touch to touch interaction between these people from the French revolution to nine 11. Right. And like, and this person taught this person and this person served in this extremist group under this person. And this person learned how to make bombs from this person, right. Mm-hmm. Over like 250 years. And this idea of like tradition, coordination, taking action to enact a political agenda, right. Or rather, using violence in order to push a conversation one direction or another. Um, I, I think we're, we're almost there. And I think this is a, a dark harbinger of what we might see, because what happens if there is this coordinated effort of people that have practiced this numerous times that know what they're doing. And this happens on, election day mm-hmm. right or on january 6th right or and, you know whatever in like <laughs> it's also at that point where you're like well shit i really hope that the nsa is picking up on some of this you know and like stopping it but then like but hang on wait a minute my pro government surveillance at that point <laughs> like yeah I don't, I don't know that that's actually what i'm saying but Maybe a little bit. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that is kind of, that is pretty crazy. Um, uh, I guess as far as like the government surveillance stuff. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how it, it, it does kind of put you in a, and I guess people's conspiracy brains will kind of have go, go off and be like, Oh, are the, is the government doing this to like, you know, like like how people think nine eleven was an inside job, so they could do the Patriot Act and take away our freedoms and stuff like that. But I don't, I I wouldn't go there. Um, ugh. Ugh. that is kind of that is crazy. I mean, from what what I uh, my who who if if this is like a right wing, you know, terrorist group or terrorist plot, which I think is more likely than anything else. Um. 
I would think it's like ex-military people and the surveillance could definitely be targeted towards these people that they already know. Like, um, it was some, there was some like old, um, special ops guy who started that the Michigan militia or whatever that's connected to Timothy McVeigh. And so I would think it would be kind of in those veins, you know, of people, um, that they could track down and they probably have files on already. And it, and I'm not sure, but I, I think the Michigan militia were the people who were trying to kidnap the governor as well. Um, so I, I would think that they have like an active profile of, of people that they suspect. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just on face value, you know, the minimal research I did into it, I just thought it was some random, like angry Trumpers or something, just fucking shit up. Cause those are easy targets. I mean, our, our power, our, our power grid is terrible. Um, I mean, I've heard it likened to if our interstate system was all gravel roads, basically. Um, hmm. Cause it's, it's just old infrastructure. And I mean, mm-hmm. that's what caused like, like the wildfires and stuff like that. It's just all this old shit. Um, but yeah, that's, that is creepy. I mean, did, did any of them, I mean, beyond the targeted, you know, potential target to the drag show, like, was there any other evidence of who might be doing this? So one of the examples of the one in North Carolina that affected the 45,000 people, it did attract a large investigation into it. And there was a woman that spoke to a local news station, something like her, her interview and her statement was like broadcast. And she was like, you know, I, I know someone that had told me that they were going to try and do this and da, 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 da. And she met with the local sheriff the same night that she gave that interview. And then three days later, she's like, yep, I don't know anything. Um, turns out I was wrong. And it kind of goes towards like, have you seen like the secret service stuff with Biden? Just the, he doesn't like trust, trust them or, you know, he's, he doesn't say certain things and he thinks that they lied about his dog and all that. Yes. And the secret service team that is currently in place apparently is almost exclusively ex law enforcement from the Southeast. Right. And it's like a bunch of older white dudes and like older, right. Like late thirties, my age. Yeah. Right. Um, but like guys that had been like local cops were, were tough, were smart, were educated, whatever. And, you know, pulled whatever strings they need to pull to get into the treasury and then pulled whatever strings and did whatever they need to do to get into the secret service and then excelled there and got into the president's lap. Right. Mm-hmm. But apparently like, yeah, he will not speak openly in front of them. There's times and examples where he's used private security instead of the Secret Service for some functions. The thing with his dog, the the time that the agent says the dog bit him, the agent would have had to have been in a place in the presidential residence that Secret Service is not allowed to go. Because the, the president and his family are still people, right? Yeah. And they're still allowed to have some modicum of privacy and this, that, and the other. And there are areas that are off limits. And so either the Secret Service 
was somewhere they weren't supposed to be at a time they weren't supposed to be there, or they're lying to his face about how and when and why the dog bit them. Right. And like, and why is the dog going to bite, you know, this, you know, granted German shepherd, aggressive breed, whatever. Right. Yeah. But like, why is this dog biting you? If you're someone they know and you're not somewhere you're not supposed to be like, what? And like, how fucking weird of a situation is that? That the president can't trust his Praetorian guards? That is right? like, fucked that's up. Not a, that does not have a good history. No, not at all. That's kind of crazy. Like, I actually kind of uh, off topic, but I, I asked, one, I was asking some of my military, actually Sam, I was just like, how come, you know, how come we haven't seen more like Secret Service guys like kill the <laughs> you know take power essentially um and and or like do an assassination or something and you know and his answer was i think it was just uh you know that obviously these people are vetted and they're they take pride in their position so it is pretty worry troublesome i mean that is very troublesome to have people like that your security detail actively working against you Yeah, and I don't know that we can say actively working against you, but at a minimum, you know, you don't trust they're talking around. Yeah, it, yeah. At a minimum, there are questions being raised, and that mm-hmm. is not a group that should have questions being asked of them. But yeah, exactly. You know that I have a friend that is a, a very close friend, and he is a, a smart guy, and. He is in the camp that he believes that the moon landing probably did happen in the way that it is described. But he leaves a lot of leniency, availability, whatever, towards the idea that it was faked. And one of the things that I've always said to him whenever this conversation has come up is like, you know, the CIA has a rule that for every person beyond two that knows a secret, the chance of it coming to light is like an exponent of that number. For sure. Right. Right. So, so it exponentially increases and the level of sophistication that it would take to pull off. Hey, yeah. Yeah. It looks like an hour is seems to be kind of the threshold. Do you want me to just, Oh, you're getting back on. Okay. I drop here and rejoin you there. Okay. All right. See ya. All right. We're back. You there? Yes. Okay. All right. Cool. 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 Um, all right. Are we still recording? Yep. The, the, all right. So the, the CIA's, um, efforts to dissuade our process, our project have failed. Um, you know, that they, they can't keep the signal offline. But, um, <laughs> you know, the, the point that I've raised to him is that the level of effort that it would have needed to execute that level of a hoax would almost far exceed the level of like actually doing it. Yeah. And his argument is like, well, but, you know, you don't need all 30,000 people involved in the moon landing project to be on board with it. Right. Like you can have factories running, building parts for rocket ships, right. That never go anywhere. Right. Yeah. But you know, there's really a core group of, you know, 
maximum 100 people that truly have to be in the know. And even then, like, at that point, according to the CIA's maxim, 100 people over 70 years, right, since it happened, or, you know, 62 years, whatever it is, um, the chances of it coming to light that they faked it is, like, basically 100%. Mm -hmm. And his response to that is that those men, and almost exclusively men, but those men and whatever handful of women, you know, lived in a time and place in a society where, you know, the concept of the country and patriotism just ran different. And we can say now that, you know, those men would have broken and those men would have, you know, told tales, right? And whatever. And I, I actually, I do believe that, right? Like, I do think that if it had been a hoax, it would have come to light, right? Yeah. Someone on their deathbed, someone would have told their wife, someone would have, you know, called a reporter at some point. However, to give his train of thought a little bit of credit, you know, there was kind of a deal made with labor, right? And with the working man and whatnot, to share in the spoils of our conquest and to share in our success that lasted like 40 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there really was, it seems this like aura of patriotism and nationalism and pride that, you know, whenever I say those words out loud today, it it's always with a tinge of disdain, but for a long time, I think there were people that had that with good reason, right? Where in like America was never without its sense, right? I mean, the For same sure. period of time in the 50s and 60s was pre civil rights, right? The same period of time in the 70s was before women's rights. You know, this period of time in the 80s was during the crack epidemic. I get it. America has its warts, but there was really a tonal shift around the time of Reagan that things started going sideways and things had never been truly fair or equal or just, but as the pie was growing, the portion of the pie that was allocated towards, you know, the bottom 50%, mm -hmm. right. Was 30% of the pie. Yep. Right. And now that piece of the pie that's for the bottom 50% is 10% of the pie, right? Or 8% of the pie, you know, whatever it is. And yeah, like that's a problem. And, and so I, I have an uncle. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I have an uncle that is all, all sorts of right-wing QAnon stuff, right? Yeah. And I talk with him about some of this stuff sometimes. And he's so close at some points to like lining up with like the corporations are in on it. The politicians are in on it. They're keeping us down. Right. And you know, the solution is like, we need to enact a fascist Christian government that will execute the leaders yeah. of the people that I do not like. Right. Yeah. And like it, you know, institute martial law. Um, and it's bizarre, right? But th there's so many different people scratching around the problem that it's clear that there's a problem, but 
there's no easy solution. And I think a lot of people like to talk about it. Like if only we could do this, we could get there. Yeah. But, but, but it's a big problem and it's not an easy one. And any solution is going to have unintended consequences. For sure. Um, I guess to your point about your uncle kind of like being almost there, um, you know, that all gas, no brakes guy, Andrew Callahan. Yeah. Andrew Callahan. Yeah. Did you watch his documentary on HBO? I'm not, but I, I watched a lot of his all gas, no brakes and his channel five stuff. I've not seen the documentary yet. I can't find it for some reason. Google's not working right, but, uh, and he's got the sexual harassment stuff. Yeah. He's, he's not, he's in hot water right now. Um, but I watched that documentary just the other day and that part of his thing at the end was like, cause he, I mean, he talked to a ton of people that are, you know, like your uncle and he basically makes the point that everybody knows they're screwed or they got screwed over. Um, but they don't know how to understand it. They don't understand why. And that's kind mm-hmm. of my philosophy on like, just like MAGA in general Um, because I do believe that a lot of those people, um, are good. Uh, I don't think Trump would have won the election if he was only, only racists voted for him. Um, like there's just that contingent of people who are really bad people. And then uh, we paint with a broad brush and call them a basket of deplorables or whatever, you know? And so that's kind of where a lot of this division is, um, because I mean, I I I do think the problem is just corporate politicians. Uh, you know, I mean, the Reagan number one corporate politician, and that's where all that fell through. Um, and and I think the Republicans are actively trying to keep us dumb so we never understand, so that we can never all come to an agreement as to why this happened. Because like the time period, like I guess like the golden age for better or worse of United States, you know, huge investment in the working class because everybody, you know, with the GI Bill, I credit the GI Bill for a lot of the reason why the American economy did so well. And it's not just the GI Bill. If you look at what happened in the 40s as America was gearing up for World War II and like in World War II, Mm -hmm. right, there was explicit times when the National Labor Relationship Board was created where they came to these manufacturers and they said, hey, we need tanks on the field in Germany tomorrow, next year, whatever. You need labor. I need for there to be tanks there, which means there cannot be disruptions in labor. We are paying you an exorbitant fee Mm -hmm. for these tanks. You do not get to keep all of that fee. You must pass that fee on to your workers because without your workers, I don't have my tanks. Exactly. Right. And that was the deal that the government made and not just with tanks, MREs, uniforms, bullets, right. Engine components, right. Like all throughout our society, the government through the war effort of world war two created that sustainable, durable middle class mm-hmm. that sustained in that, like, um, that golden era that you just, yeah. you know, coined, right? For like 35 years, yeah. right? And then Reagan. Yep. 
I mean, right. And like, that's, I don't know, man, the more I, the more I read about it, like that's where shit really went sideways. Yeah. I think it was basically Reagan and Clinton, uh, with NAFTA, um, kind of fucked shit up because, and and then the just corporate world, because like, do you know, Jack Welch, do you know who that is? I do. Yeah. Or, from GE or John Welch. Yeah. No, he goes, no, Jack. J- J- Jack Welch from okay. GE. Yep. But he, he is the one who I read, or I read like an opinion piece about him uh, not too long ago. So basically, before him, GE and their quarterly earnings reports and whatnot would brag about, hey, we were able to pay our workers this much. And he was the one who kind of came in with all these austerity measures and then became very influential in the business world. And okay. now, I mean, GE is reaping what it sows. You know, GE's a got fell off the S&P 500 a few years ago. They're really, yeah, they had to sell off. Like, uh, I think, I think all they own now is like health, some appliances and wind energy. I mean, they also make light bulbs. They make engines that, you know, they make microwaves appliances because like, so like, for example, GE locomotive in Erie was sold off. Um, I I can't name every single division of GE, but I know in like, it was like 2016, 16, 17, or no, 17, 18, when the shit was hitting the fan, um, they spun off a ton of their companies and sold them off to other, other entities. Uh, and sure. so, so, so my, my education about Jack Welch, like his big contribution or his big legacy, right. Is that he was the first person that became like the CEO of like a massive company, GE, mm-hmm that embraced Milton Friedman's um yeah shareholder value like ethos right like my chief job is to return value to shareholders and so he would prioritize short term profits over long term growth mm-hmm. such that you know he does that right shareholders get value today and then they directly compensated him for that because he kept putting money in their pockets and one of the ways that he did that was through what was coined as a rank and yank system where every year, every employee within, co- within the company was rated on some objective scale and like objective, right? Like who's doing the, the marking and the, the scales smart and the bottom 10. I'm sorry. Smart people. Yeah. Smart right. Goals. Exactly. I, I got gotcha. you. And <laughs> the bottom 10% of the company was fired yeah. every single year. And that created this like toxic system of people not being willing to take risks. And so like innovation fell through the floor Mm -hmm. and it also created this subculture of like people sabotaging one another so that you're in the bottom 10% and I'm not, and I get to keep my job. Um, but Jack Welch also is going has gone down as like one of the highest paid CEOs of all time. When he retired, he was given a four hundred million dollar exit package. That's insane for him to stop being the CEO. That's crazy. But yeah, that, I said smart goals earlier. That's where that's kind of oh. where that shit comes from. Um, yeah. But like, why I said austerity is because they also give shareholder value by cutting costs, which includes labor. And sure that kind of leads into all the lean initiatives and blah, 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 like just austerity essentially. Um, and that 
itself has degraded the working class and the middle class. And where I think Reagan and Clinton come into this is we were able to, I've said, I say this a lot. Corporations are able to, uh, move through state lines. Like state lines are porous for corporations for the most part, Mm -hmm. and they aren't for labor. So they're able to devalue our labor by shipping all our jobs away, you know? And I I do think that you're painting with too broad of a brush again, right? With the way that like the comment that you just made about lean manufacturing is always austerity, right? Or, or is effectively just austerity, right? It's a part of, you know, but if we're, if we're having someone take 15 steps, to, to do a process and they could have taken 10 right and there's just waste that exists right because the first time that the process was set up was not the most efficient and now that we've been operating for three years we can change things because we recognize a new and different and better way to do things yeah we but, should do that but some of those things include firing like your purchasing department and having one guy do everything you know, like administratively, and and now we're seeing record amounts of burnout, and burnout has become a huge problem in the corporate world. Um, there are certainly examples of that being done poorly, and really, like the Toyota manufacturing system, right, which is what led into like the system that I was trained in, which was like uh, Lean Six Sigma, yeah, right, would say like, don't do that, yeah. right, like that's bad, right, because you need to to recognize long term stuff, but there certainly are examples of times where the first time we set something up, we created this position right for, for a person. Mm -hmm. And three years after operating, we realize, well, you know, we don't need someone to collect Mm -hmm. the orders from this person to deliver the orders of that person. We can just have person a hand the, the orders to person C. We don't need person B to do that. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. That does happen, and that sucks for person B. Yeah, but if they're not needed in the process, do we need to keep them in the process? Yeah, and I understand like where efficiencies can happen, but I do think a lot of what's going on is just like when we were. So I guess two personal examples I have of of what I us like austerity in the workplace, like at our old place of work where we worked together, I had a manager tell me that you're supposed to run your team like a NASCAR pit crew. And basically, you know, and, and that's, you know, some, I don't know, (laughs) some prick business author, you know, came up with this idea, like, you know, push your people like a NASCAR pit team because you'll get more results out of them than if you, you know, because they're under pressure all the time. And that's so like NASCAR, you know, obviously they need to work as quickly as possible. So that was kind of his thing was like always make it always like put more on their plate than they can handle, because if you let them fill their own plate up, they're not going to put enough on it, you know. And then um, I remember after COVID getting a pay cut and losing my 401k match they told us on a quarterly meeting specifically it was so they could become profitable that quarter. And so shit Mm -hmm. like that happens. That's detrimental. And then what happens? Record turnover. I mean, like the Minneapolis office lost like almost all of their sales staff because they did this shit to them. 
And the only people mm-hmm. that got to keep their money were uh, the operations guys because they're protected by a union and they threatened to strike. Sure. And so, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I mean, how, how are we going to connect this back to uh, the, C- the Secret Service destroying our power substations? No, yeah, we, we have gone far afield, <laughs> for sure. Um, going back to that, yeah, all right. So, yeah, going back to that, I do think that when Obama got elected... And we saw the Tea Party rise up, right, and as a direct response to Obama. That was immediately in the wake of the Wall Street um, shoot. What was it? Uh, the the the, um, the, the protest. The, in, yeah, what was it called? Wall Street. What uh, uh, Occupy Wall Street? Oc- yeah, the, the yep. Occupy Wall Street movement. They were those two movements, the Tea Party movement and the Occupy Wall Street movement. They were expressing a lot of similar outrage and pointing at some similar systemic problems, Mm -hmm. but from different points of view Mm -hmm. and from operating in a different mechanism. And I think we're kind of seeing an echo of that now with the black lives matter with the women's march with the pussy hats with QAnon, with this rise in right-wing extremism people are sensing that things aren't right yeah and people on different sides of the political spectrum social ideals whatever can sense that they're being pushed, they're being rubbed, there's friction, it's unfortunate, it's uncomfortable, we don't like it, and we're going to push back. And at some point, this friction is going to cause some sparks, and this friction is going to start a fire. And I think that we've had a lot of systems in place to stamp those fires out for a long time. And I don't know, like, I... I've had these conversations with my wife. I've had these conversations with an aunt of mine. You know, I, I think that I, it feels to me increasingly like there's a fire coming. Right. And like, mm-hmm. and so my response to that has been like, well, if there's going to be a fire around you, may as well have some firearms. <laughs> right. Where yeah. and like, I'm not kidding about that. Right. Yeah, like that's yeah. real. Um, and I mean, I hope I'm wrong. I hope that I'm, you know, overreacting but i don't know i know mean, we'll see we'll see yeah, yeah. I, I think 2024 is going to tell us a lot yeah and i think that's why i don't know i i i if there was an actual uprising or something um i think we would go i think we would become a like military state before we would get actually taken over by fascists and these right wingers. Um, cause I, th- those guys are going to be toast. I don't know. Like sh- they have a court, like, you know, we just spoke about their coordinated efforts to, you know, go and sabotage unsecured locations. 
that are very out in the open and easily accessible, but how are they going to face the national guard even? Or let alone, I think in the, the military. I, I think in the same way that the Taliban did, right? Like, yeah, not not in the field, right? By setting bombs where they can, taking pot shots where they can, being a part of the crowd when they need to be. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, I could definitely see a rise in domestic terrorism, but I don't think like I guess if we're fu- we, we we just talked about how there were 125 instances of that in 2022 like it, it, that was a comment i meant to make earlier that i didn't like if we don't use the words domestic terrorism to describe what that what those attacks are mm-hmm. what word would you use oh, no, right like terrorism. it's almost the dictionary definition of it yeah yeah that's terrorism i just don't think like the taliban was able to seize power and become you know the government of Afghanistan. I don't they think didn't seize power that they, they took control when we left, right? Once we stopped bombing them into oblivion from the <laughs> sky, right? They, they, took, they are what they, they took over before we invaded them. They were the government before we invaded. Sure. Yeah. So um, they, they did take power sure. from the, whatever the established state of Afghanistan was. I don't think the right wing. Hang on, whoa, 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 hang on. I, I think you're misconstruing Afghanistan's history there, right? I mean, it's not like there was this like good and right and just well, power structure. It was a much that more liberal. The Taliban like toppled, right? Like there was a collection of tribes and warlords and this, that, and the other, right? There was not this great cohesive governing structure that the Taliban upended, right? Like the Taliban. Well, took okay. control guess, of it over like a course of like 30 years because they were the extension of like the resistance to the Soviets, right? That sure. we funded in the eighties. Yeah. So Rambo three is dedicated to the Mujahideen <laughs> brothers. Yeah, I know. I think there's actually like a, I think a New York times article calling Osama bin Laden, like a good guy or something. Oh, for sure. <laughs> but I guess, what are we, I guess, so what are we, what do we, what do you think these people are going to become then? Like, are they going to become, are they going to take power of the United States government? Or are we just going to see uh, a bunch of strings of domestic terrorism, a rise in domestic terrorism? I think it's far more likely that we see a, a rise in domestic terrorism, that we see these undercurrents of agitators and malcontents, right? I think that's the most likely outcome. Okay, I agree um, with that. I think that those people, you know, with delusions of grandeur, right, view it as if the right people in the right positions are on our side, there can be, you know, some mass action with official state sanction. And even though I said, I think... The other thing is more likely. I don't think they're entirely wrong that that's possible. Um, you know, a lot of our military, especially post Vietnam, has a lot of training related to compliance, right? And following orders. And yeah. we're sending ordnance down this range, right? Not we're bombing this village, right? We're delivering this package, mm-hmm. right? And. I don't think it's outside of the realm of possibility for a military coup to occur within the country. 
I don't think it's likely. Yeah. I think there's a lot of systems in place to prevent that. I think there's a lot of institutions that despite some people's best efforts, some people being like Steve Bannon, right. Um, are strong mm-hmm. and will protect against that. But at a minimum, that is those groups stated goals, right? That is those groups desired outcome. And they believe they see a path to success in that arena. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's likely, but I, you know, I, if I do think, I think it, it's possible that some people could do some stuff that inspires, you know, a national guard commander to be like, all right, troops we're arming up and we're going to go secure a location. I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would happen. And it's, I mean, on a small scale, you know, it does happen with like, like the ATF and the FBI, you know, with the, uh, was that guy like Waco, you know, Waco and things like that. And I think there's something called like Ruby Hill or something up over in Idaho, you know, shit Ruby like that. Ridge. Ruby Ridge. Yeah. So they go in and kill them. So I, I could see, I could see them getting away with a Timothy McVeigh type of attack on a larger scale. But I do believe they would immediately be murdered by the, 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 the feds but but Kevin, my point is, let's say that General Mark Milley had been one of these people, mm-hmm. and you know Mark Milley is the one that took pictures with Trump in D.C. Um, during the Black Lives Matter protests, and like they cleared the square in front of a a church so that like Trump could take a picture with the Bible, and like he held it upside down like a moron, whatever, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. But but Mark Milley, I think he was like the um, uh, SecDef. I think he was Secretary of Defense at the time, mm-hmm. right? And I don't think he was still SecDef at January sixth. But but my point being, he is someone that was in a position of power to say to your boss's boss's boss, "Go do this thing," and yes. I'm the one telling you to do this thing right now. Right? I'm yeah. here. Yeah. Right. Your boss's boss's boss answers to me. I'm here. You go do this thing. And if someone with that kind of authority had been there and was in alignment with Trump on January 6th and saying, we need to go in and secure the Capitol on behalf of the protesters and set up the gallows out front, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and the troops answer those orders, right? And like, and it doesn't have to be all 3 million members of our military, For sure. right? If a few hundred of them take this drastic action in the moment, things get real dark real oh, quick, yeah. right? And yeah. then like, you know, we have a constitutional crisis and we have an insurrection, right? A coup, right? And like, I, th- in the same way that the global economic supply chain was very, very fragile. And we are still experiencing the pains of its disruption today from COVID. I think our political system is exceptionally fragile. And if an event like that were to happen, it would shatter so much trust in institutions, elections, you know, the powers that be. I don't know what recovery would look like from that. And I think that these people, the QAnon people, are saying, we just need our moment. We just need to get a Mark Milley on our side in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. 
and I think shit would get real weird. For sure. Yeah, it would. I mean, you would almost have like different factions of the military at that point fighting against each other. Right. <laughs> yeah. It'd right, be well, fucked and, up. and so like within like within those circles, right? There's there's something called like I think I think the term is like the initiative of action or the initiative of violence, right? Where there is what's called a first mover advantage. And that's a business term, right? But if I'm the person kicking the door in and throwing flashbang grenades in and coming in right behind the flashbangs, guns blazing, right? And you're the one getting flashbanged and then open fired on, right? Like shit's in my favor real quick. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess the way I would see that work uh, panning out would be like the govern or the military would take over the government, and they would tr- probably say they're going to do like a schedule where they give power back to politicians or something, and we see when that how long that takes. I don't know. I how close we are to that. I think the closest we were to that was under Trump, and I'm hoping that that is as close as we're ever going to get in our lifetimes. Because um, I do, I mean, I don't know. Just personally, I think the government is uh, <laughs> not. Nah, I don't know. Never mind. Yeah, it's it's, it's kind of up in the air. But I, I mean, I do think that the closest we were to something like that happening was January sixth. Sure. I guess maybe of these power station psychos go back to the Capitol on January 6th or something of the next election and shut down all the power. Um, yeah. What would the military do? What would the police forces do there? Like they just start opening fire and shooting. Who knows? Um, I, I think Brazil is giving us some good lessons on how to handle an insurrection. Mm-hmm. You, you arrest them. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Uh, for sure. Yeah. It was a complete, I mean, yeah. January 6th was a complete failure on the part of law enforcement for sure. The Capitol police or whatever. Yeah. But then they did. I mean, they started, I, I don't, do you think the sentences have been severe enough from what you've heard? No, no. no. Yeah. Like, isn't there some guy in Congress now, uh, like a state legislature or something who was in jail for it? That wouldn't shock me. Um, Mastriano, the guy from uh, that ran for governor in Pennsylvania, he was at January sixth. Oh god! Right? And like he lost yeah. to um, whatever his name was, Shapiro. whoever's in Pennsylvania now. Yeah. But I mean, he was he was at the top of the ticket for Republicans. Yeah. So I guess to wrap it up, like, what do we do about it? Like, are we? supposed to you know post 9-11 world give more of our freedoms up and our liberties up to the government or and this is the way i would probably go i think if we gave more power to labor and made people's lives a lot more comfortable you wouldn't have so much agitation yeah sure no and that speaks exactly to what i was talking about earlier with you know deals were made between government and explicitly labor leaders at mm-hmm. the time that organized a huge portion of the population right like i think at the time it was something like 35% of the population was in unions right mm-hmm. and today it's like 11% right and so like of those 11% you know i don't know 
80% of them actually have good deals, right? And 20% are still shafted even by their unions, right? Um, yeah, no, I, I, I agree that a return to that would do a long way to take the wind out of the sails of this agitation mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, but I don't know, from what I've seen, it, I think the action being taken seems to be to give more money to law enforcement and the military. Well, and let's be real about what we just said, right? Mm-hmm. The, the solution that we just agreed upon is that the powers that be, the people that own capital, the people that have all of that wealth that they're extracting from that excess value, mm-hmm. just need to give yeah. trillions of dollars back to other people. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, and I right, yeah, J- just do that. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm hoping. I, I I'm actually hoping that that like 15 percent minimum tax or whatever that Biden did is going to help to strengthen institutions that actually help the working class. Um, but I guess we'll wait wait and see because I think I mean at the golden age we were talking about wasn't the corporate tax rate like 30 something percent or more. Yeah, but there's a lot of bullshit accounting that goes into sure. that. And like no one actually paid some of these tax rates because gotcha. like under Eisenhower, right? The top marginal tax rate for individuals was 90%. Mm-hmm. But like of the people that were actually subject to that, right? Which like in its own right was like 1% or less than 1% of the population was subject to that 90% tax break. Mm-hmm. You know, only 1% of the people subject to it actually paid it. Sure. But yeah, I think, and and at the state level, at least where I'm at, um, the governor is trying to do things like raise the minimum starting salary for teachers to 60,000 a year. Um, which, you know, uh, in Seattle, in Seattle, that's comfortable. You know, it's not the greatest, but it's comfortable. Um, and put, you know, $4 billion into affordable housing, you know, to help like the homeless situation and, you know, with drugs and addiction and stuff. So like, I, I definitely think just more stuff like that can and should happen. Um, yes, these people aren't just going to give their money away and that's why we have to tax them. Um, so, I mean, I, I really, I guess I see kind of more of a balkanization of the United States where, you know, you have your Southern folk like you <laughs> where, <laughs> where shit's going to hit the fan and, and maybe there could be some semblance of civilization and, you know, smarter, more well-run states. I mean, I, I, I do, I definitely, I mean, it just does seem like that's the way I think the conservatives with the state right shit, they're winning, you know, and that's kind of just the way things are now is you have to live yeah. in a good state. Like the country just, the country just funds cops and military. I know that's not well, on that po- true, but. <laughs> uh, well on that positive note yeah so yeah yeah let's wrap it up um so yeah good conversation um I'm glad we got a lot out of the uh the spitballing segment um so that's cool um but yeah if uh, anyone wants to follow us uh on twitter it's at explore underscore pod um I'm gonna try to send Adam on a uh a rambling about turmeric if possible <laughs> But I've yeah. been taking turmeric for years. Have you? Yeah. Do you do you like it? Do you think it's helped you? I well, yes. Um, I, I took it 
I, I take it still because it helps with my gout. Okay. And it, you know, there are times when, um, you know, I ran out of the bottle and I haven't gotten back to Costco. Right. And then like, I don't take it for like three or five days and I have a gout flare. Hmm. Like it, it, at a minimum, like it does help suppress gout hundred percent. Yeah. And that, I'm taking it just for like indigestion basically. Well, I never have indigestion problems, yeah. but like I never knew that was a, a side effect, right? I, I take it for gout. Mm-hmm. Cool. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Good, good.